So we're studying Jesus and how John portrays Him in his gospel. And just a reminder that throughout this book, John has followed, you know, he's followed a certain cycle in presenting Jesus as the divine Son of God. We're familiar with this idea. You know, first he details the miracles and the teachings of Jesus throughout his ministry. Next he records how Jesus challenges his audience and followers to believe him as the divine Christ. He always does that. There's always that. He's always putting that out there that they have to make that decision. And then John shows how the people react either with belief or with disbelief to the words, the actions and the claims of the Lord. So it's been no different in this last scene where Jesus teaches and encourages His apostles the last time before His death and then subsequent resurrection. So the interesting thing is they've been with Him you know, for three years and even after three years He's still challenging them with this same, this same idea. So at the critical moment as He prepares them for His departure He continues to challenge them to believe in Him but this time he urges them to keep on believing because his suffering and death as well as their own rejection and persecution is going to put a lot of pressure on their faith. So far he's been there. He says, you know, believe, the, believe the miracles, believe my words, so on and so forth, but he's there. Now he's saying, you need to keep on believing because pretty soon I'm not going to be there to support you and to encourage you. So we've read in the previous chapter, he's warned them of the persecution to come. He's promised them that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them in order to, in order to encourage them, comfort them, empower them, enable them to carry on the ministry that He's charged them with. So Jesus has even given them an overview of what the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish through them as they begin to preach in the future, in the not too distant future and through their spiritual descendants who will carry forth the word of the gospel until he returns. So he, he just doesn't tell them about the immediate future, I'm going to die and so on and so forth, I'm going to resurrect. But he also projects even further ahead into their ministry, what's going to happen, and even further than that, beyond their ministry, beyond their lifetimes, the things that are going to take place through their preaching and of course through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in a cryptic way, he says that despite their crisis of faith and uh, persecution, the Holy Spirit will first convict the world of sin and disbelief. Secondly, convict the world of seeking to be right with God without the cross of Christ. That's almost like talking about other religions. You know, a lot of major religions began after Christ. Some preceded Christ. Hinduism, for example, is older than Christianity. But mo mo most of them are after Christ. And he's saying, hey, a lot of the world is going to try to seek righteousness with God apart from me. That's what he's talking about. And the Spirit will convict them of that. And then the Spirit will also convict the world of failing to prepare for judgment. Even after the judgment and condemnation of Satan was made public through the revelation of Scripture. Even though through his resurrection he confirms the things that he said are true and the things that he said was that Satan is judged, Satan is bound, so on and so forth. Even with that declaration, people are still going to reject their message. So these things the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish through them and those that follow them in the faith. So having completed his teaching and encouragement, Jesus, who was the presider at the Passover, 
and their leader. He takes the final opportunity to pray for his apostles before he's arrested and led away to be killed. So uh, now they leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and then he's going to pray for himself and his own struggle. So while he's in the upper room, he's talking to them, about them, about their future. He's going to pray for them. When he leaves there and he goes to the garden, then he's going to not be praying for them. He's going to be praying for himself, by himself. Okay? And so um, we move to chapter um, 17, uh, beginning in verse 1, of course. And in this particular uh, chapter, we um, um, we're going to um, see what's called the high priestly prayer. Uh, this section was referred to as the high priestly prayer uh, by uh, 16th century Lutheran scholar uh, David Kytraeus. Um, and he called it that because in this prayer Jesus exercises his high priestly office in taking on uh, the sins of the people and offering up prayer and sacrifice for the sins. So what he's doing now, he shifts from being the leader of the apostles, you know, their encourager, now he takes on his other role, the high priest role, okay, that uh, is talked about in Hebrews actually. So the essential difference of course between Jesus as the high priest and the normal high priests is that Jesus did not need to offer first a sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. So the Jewish priests, they had to offer first sacrifice for themselves before they offered sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to do this. He didn't have any sins. Okay? Uh, he didn't offer an animal as sacrifice, but rather he was both the priest and the sacrifice in offering himself up as the atonement for sin. So yes, he's the high priest. You know, all, all the other priests are really just a reflection of him, a shadow of, of him, okay? a preview of his priesthood. And so he offers himself up. He's both priest and sacrifice. And then Jesus could also relate to the sinful men or two sinful men as priests because he also bore a human body. You know, the whole idea of the priesthood was that as a man, you know, a priest could relate to human weakness and sin and, 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 and death and so on and so forth. So Jesus also, as a high priest, He can relate to the sufferings that a human has. But as the divine Son of God, His prayer was perfect and it was heard in the throne room of grace because of His perfect righteousness. And so uh, think about that. If the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, as James says in his epistle, imagine what the prayer of a perfectly righteous God slash man can accomplish. Imagine Jesus' prayer, the power that it has. So with all of this in mind, let's, let's kind of break down the passage as we do. Now for study purposes, this chapter and this prayer can be divided into three main sections. First of all, prayer concerning Himself and the Father in heaven. First five verses. The next part of the high priestly prayer, verse 6 to 19, is prayer concerning the apostles at His side. And then the last part, 20 to 26, prayer concerning future believers in all the world. So if we, you know, if we kind of break it down that way, it's a little easier to manage and understand. So in this way, Jesus prays for Himself and all of mankind in the first few verses. So His prayer for Himself, 
you know, there's a lot of kinds of prayers. You know, prayers of thanksgiving or prayers of praise, prayers of repentance, prayers of lamentation, all kinds of prayers that we make. But this prayer is one of supplication. It's one of asking. So Jesus asks God for various things for Himself, the apostles, and all future Christians. So let's read verse one. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So having finished teaching His apostles and giving them comfort, the Lord ends their time in the upper room and the Passover meal with a prayer as was custom. At the end of the meal, the presider, the father would end everything with, you know, it's interesting, we start with a prayer. We start our meals with a prayer. Isn't that our custom? We rarely finish our meals uh, with, a, with a prayer. So, but the Passover meal ended also with a prayer. And we note that Jesus has told them that the time for His departure was near and He repeats this as He opens His prayer. He says, the hour. Now the hour is not just the time for His death, but the time for all of the things He came to do are to be fulfilled in His death, resurrection, and accession. So it's not the hour, oh yeah, well it's 11 o'clock, it's time to do, no. The hour is the moment when everything is coming together. That's what he's talking about. And so he asks God to glorify, uh, another word for glorify, to exalt or to lift up, the Son, so that the Son may do the same for the Father. Now Jesus will be glorified at this time because it's the hour of His death and especially the hour of His resurrection. That's how He'll be glorified. You know, in John 20, 31, the resurrection will confirm all of His teaching. You know, in other words, let's answer the question, how does the resurrection glorify Jesus? And so a little further down in John chapter 20, we see that the resurrection will confirm all of the teachings that He made as true. The resurrection also will confirm all of His claims as true. If the person who said, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah, dies and then resurrects from the dead, you can be pretty sure that He is the Messiah. Uh, what more proof can you have about His power? In Colossians 1.16, Paul says the resurrection confirms Jesus' position over all men and over all angels. So that's how the resurrection glorifies Jesus. Now the resurrection is also uh, something that will glorify the Father in the fact that resurrection will reveal the power of the Father. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.4. In Romans 3, resurrection reveals the righteousness of God. Look how right God is, how perfect He is. How perfect are His ways that He devised this plan uh, that Jesus would come and die for the sins of men and then resurrect to justify all men. You know, I mean, uh, that, that's the Father's plan. And so the resurrection confirms not only the power of the Father, but the righteousness, the rightness of His plan. And then in Romans 5, um, Paul says that the resurrection also uh, reveals the mercy and the love of the Father. So in those ways, the resurrection glorifies the Father. So Jesus asks the Father to go through with His plan of the death and resurrection because this will result in glory for both the Father and the Son. So let's keep reading verse two and three. He says, um, 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So he's saying, you know, this moment of glory is not a self-serving action for God. What will take place will be done to serve mankind. It's not just about the Father and the Son will be glorified so everybody can say, wow, really good, way to go Father, way to go Son, you, know, you guys are great. You know, it's not just about that. As a result of the death and resurrection, forgiveness will be available and along with that forgiveness will come the righteousness that produces eternal life for human beings. Oh, that serves us too. We got a, you know, we've got skin in the game too. We, there's something in it for us. If it was only for us to see how wonderful God is, well, it would be good, but what does that do for me? But the resurrection does something for me as well as glorify God. The Father and the Son will be glorified in their combined effort to grant human beings the gift of eternal life. That's what's in it for me. So Jesus received the authority or the power to offer this through His death, resurrection, and He received the authority to do it from the Father. He now asks the Father to complete the plan for the goodness of man. Jesus also summarizes the experience of eternal life, not simply as human life without end, but a new kind of life experience. I've said this before. An experience where a person will have an ongoing knowledge or intimacy with the true God and His true Son. You know, people say, well, what am I going to do in heaven? You know, are we going to be playing the harp? You know, that's just you know, Hollywood's version of heaven. You know what I'm saying? Uh, or, or it's going to be, you know, I hear people saying, oh, you know, our brother Ron, he's in the great golf course in the sky. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and sometimes I do funerals and the, and the people say, you know, uh, Sister Sophie, she's, uh, she's with her knitting circle now. You know, in other words, they see heaven as the best thing on earth, frozen in time forever. But Jesus said that's, that's not what heaven is at all. He says heaven, eternal life, is the ongoing relationship you have with God, with no barriers. The relationship we have with God now has barriers and the barrier is my sinfulness. You know, sometimes you're praying and you are in the spirit and it's like you, you, you're really praying and you know, you're, 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 all the things are coming together you know, and it, it goes for a moment or two or a minute or five or ten. You know, you're in the spirit, you're praying, you know, your heart is open to God and then all of a sudden the phone rings, the baby cries, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, we're living in the real world. And so resurrection removes the sinful body out of the equation, re-equips us with a glorified body, no sin, and the purpose for the glorified body is to enable us to have a relationship with God that has no boundaries. We get to know Him in depth. He doesn't have to get to know us, He already knows us. The beautiful thing is we have a relationship that is not based on our sinfulness, which is what our relationship is now based on. We're sinners, He saved us. Okay? So that's what 
Jesus is summarizing that experience. A, a, an experience where a person will have an ongoing knowledge or intimacy, to know God. In the Old Testament the word to know meant intimacy. The, they would say, and, and he knew her, or the man knew his wife. They don't, they don't mean knew her like, hi, my name is Joe. They mean knew her, intimis, intimately know her. Well, it's the same word here for to know God, this intimate relationship with God. So the Father and the Son will be glorified and man will share in that glory as well by his association with them. Verse four and five, let's keep going. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus, once again, repeats his request and this time he makes a specific reference to his divine nature. He specifies that his glory is connected to his nature, his divine nature, before he took on human flesh. So his glory will be seen without the interference and limiting handicap of a human nature. In other words, people have seen me in this human body, limited. Now I ask you, that they be allowed to see me without the limitations of this human body, his resurrected self, his glorified self. Okay? So this, of course, refers ahead to his resurrection and manifestation in his glorified spiritual state before he returns to heaven. So that's the first section. So now the next section is Jesus' prayer for the apostles. So his prayer for the apostles is in two sections. One part is how he feels about them. The next part is what he wants for them. So verses six to 10 talks about how he feels concerning the apostles. He says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given, uh, everything you have given me is for you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified um, in them. So Jesus kind of reviews what he knows to be true concerning his apostles. They were chosen by the Father. Now they could have refused his choice of them like Judas did, but the other apostles, they did accept the choice. They did follow in faith. He says they were given the words of the Father through Christ. He says they have received and believed the Father's words concerning Jesus and in doing so they have glorified or exalted or honored Jesus in themselves through their faith. We honor Christ through our faith. And he's saying My, these apostles that you gave me, they believed, they accepted, they honored me by believing me and following me. And so because of this Jesus specifically prays and asks special things for them. He doesn't ask for the world for these things, but because they believe in Him and have His word, He asks for them. This prayer and its request is born of deep love and affection for His apostles. And so in the beginning, He says, 
these men that you gave me, they're special. They, they did what, what they were supposed to do. They believed in me. They honored me. He feels for them. And he wants certain things for them. So we read in verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Now as in other places, Jesus summarizes in this verse what he desires for his apostles and then he explains it in the following verses. So Jesus is leaving them to return to the Father, so He asks the Father to protect them. But not protect them like you know, that somebody hurts them or protect them that they're not sick or they don't have any problems. He says, I want you to protect them by the word. Okay? So when He uses the term name, the term name comes from a word which means authority. So God's authority and character are synonymous with His word and these ideas are all rolled into a single word, you know, the word name. Okay? So in other words, name and word are interchangeable. Okay? Your name, your word, He could use either, either word interchangeably in this verse. So I want you to protect them how? Through your name. I want you to protect them how? Through your word. Same thing. Refers to God's authority. All right? And so how does that work, protecting them through the quote word? Well, the knowing and understanding and keeping of God's word is the basis of unity between the Father and the Son. So Jesus prays that the apostles will be kept from spiritual harm and enjoy the um, same unity as He does with the Father as they know and understand the Word. In other words, if, if they continue in the Word, they're going to enjoy the, relation, the type of relationship that the Father and Son enjoy. Okay? So we see from this part of the prayer how important the work of the Holy Spirit is going to be. I mean, He leads them to knowing and understanding the Word. That's what He does for the apostles. He enables them to overcome sin, which is disobedience to the word, Romans 8, verse 13. So very, if, the, if knowing the word protects you against the evil and temptation and so on and so forth, and if knowing the word uh, um, uh, gives forth the experience that the Father and Son has, if knowing the word protects the unity, well, I guess knowing the word is pretty important. Not just the word, but knowing the word. And so in verse 12 he says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Uh, uh, you see what I'm saying? He could have said, I was keeping them in your word. Same thing. So while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So while Jesus was physically present, He spoke and taught them the word, and as a result, the only one lost was the one that the scripture said would be lost. So it's not as if the word didn't work. That's the point he's making. You know, someone would say, well, well, the word of God, if it was so powerful, how come Judas didn't make it? And the answer to that is, well, the word is powerful because long ago it said that Judas wouldn't make it. Okay? So it's not that God forced Judas out. 
It's that God knew in advance how Judas would react and wrote about it long before as a way of confirming the scripture's divine authorship. Okay. All right, keep going. 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. Oh, I could have said I've given them your name. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask, uh, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So whatever interactions concerning their salvation and their safety that the father and son may have had to which the apostles could not know. In other words, whatever, the fa- whatever only the father and son knew in the past, this information now is going to be made public. How? Through them, through the apostles. That's what he's saying. There were things that nobody knew. Well, what things did nobody know? Well, that God would save mankind by sending His Son who would be, take on a body and die on the earth. Nobody knew that. Nobody knew what the plan was. Only the Father and the Son knew the, the plan. The Holy Spirit knew the plan. So He's saying, you know that plan that we had that we, only the two of us knew? Well now everybody's going to know that plan through them. This information is public. They can hear for themselves what God the Father and the Son want for them and this knowledge and experience should provide not only but great joy. So Jesus bears witness before the Father in heaven that these men are believers. He says they're not of the world. He says they're worthy of His care and protection and also they share His own rejection and persecution from an unbelieving world. It's almost as if he is giving them a letter of recommendation to the Father. You, know, you go for a job, you want a, re- a letter of recommendation from your present employer. This is kind of what this is. He's saying, I'm their present leader, employer, and, and here's my letter of recommendation to them, you know, to the big boss. They're believers, they followed me, and so on and so forth. They're worthy of this. I'm leaving them and now someone else has taken my place to help and guide them. That'll be the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't ask that they go with him now in a kind of a glorious resurrection and ascension in a few days. He says, no, no, they've got to stay here. They have a great work to do. So he asks that they be protected against the wicked schemes of the devil who will certainly try to destroy the young church and its leaders in years to come. Be nice if they all went out in the blaze of glory, right? If there were 12 crosses, you know, one for Jesus, another, another 11 crosses for the apostles, you know, everybody goes out in the blaze of glory. Only one problem with that. Somebody's got to stay behind to do the work. And that's what he's saying. They, they're not coming with me. They're staying here. Here's their letter of recommendation. I'm asking you, please, you know, go with them. Help them to do the work that they've got to do. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, your name, same thing. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves 
may be sanctified in the truth, or in truth, no the there. So to sanctify means to set apart for God's exclusive use. Thus the priests in the Old Testament were, quote, sanctified or set apart for exclusive service to God in the temple. So in verse 17, Jesus summarizes a request that He has made and explained before. He asks the Father to set apart the apostles for the exclusive ministry that they are to undertake. He asks that this setting apart be done through the truth which is God's word. Always talking about the Holy Spirit, by the way. He's always talking about the Holy Spirit coming and what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Here's their letter of recommendation. They're worth it. I want you to protect them from the world. I want you to empower them. I want you to set them apart. This is all what the Holy Spirit is going to do when He comes. Now we know that Jesus has already promised this and explained how it'll happen through the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring them into remembrance of everything that Jesus taught them. In John 16, we learn that uh, the Holy Spirit will lead them to all truth. And again in John John 14, we know that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would comfort comfort them and strengthen them and so on and so forth. So all those promises that He made before about the coming of the Holy Spirit, He kind of brings them all together and summarizes them in this final prayer. So Jesus separates Himself fully through the cross and through resurrection and ascension so that the Holy Spirit will come and set them apart as well through His work in and for them. And you know, look, this is a very long passage. Uh, you know, this is a very long, pa- a very long prayer and it's easy to kind of, whoa, wait a minute, you know, there's so much stuff in here. But just remember, you know, the letter of recommendation and what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing for them. That's what he's talking about here. So Jesus was set apart or commissioned, if you wish, by the word, by the name, to bring the word of God to men. Now, after he has completed his mission, he sends the apostles out into the world by the authority of the word to bring the word to the world. A lot of W's there. All right. A kind of a succession plan. The Father sends the Son, now the Son sends the Apostles. But it's always done through the authority of the Word. Always done through the authority of the name. Always done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the same Word that sent and empowered Him will now set apart, send and empower the Apostles through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the prayer for himself and God, the prayer for the apostles, third part, the prayer for future disciples, verses 20 to 26. I'll read that in a minute. So Jesus has asked the Father to protect and commission and empower His apostles to complete their mission as He is about to complete His own mission. Now He looks further into the future and He offers a prayer for all those generations of believers who will come after because of the ministry of the apostles. Here He's praying for us and this is what He asks for. Now we read verse 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So he prays that the growth and unity of the church will provide an ongoing witness to an unbelieving world. He doesn't mention it, but the opposite is certainly true. Going away from the world leads us away from God and each other, and this makes us ineffective in reaching lost souls. Let's face it, have you ever visited a congregation who's going through a split? You know, the leaders are, are, are fighting with one another or there's some immorality going on and the church is just falling apart. As a Christian, if you were moving into that town, would you begin attending that church? You'd say, uh-uh, they got nothing to teach me. You know what I'm saying? If, if, the, if, if, if the church is in a battle with, with itself, it's, it's not something that, you know, it's not something that you want to get involved in. So the idea of disunity not only tears apart the church, but it gives a terrible witness to others who are not believers and who are trying to learn. All right, so let's go verse 22 and 23. He says, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be protected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So what, quote, glory did the Father give to the Son? Well, it can't be divine glory because the Son is already God and He can't be added to in any way. So the glory is the divine presence in a human body and a divine mission for His body. That's the glory that God, the Father, gives the Son. He gives, them an he gives the Son an opportunity to manifest divinity to human beings. John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and we beheld His glory in referring to Jesus' bodily presence. Okay? So Jesus shared His presence in physical form in order to become one with His apostles. He became one of them while retaining His divine nature. That's the glory that Jesus is talking about here. All right, so it's important. You know, God the Father didn't give Jesus His divine nature. He already has the divine. He is God. But through the plan to save man, Jesus has the opportunity to manifest a divine nature right there in front of men. So through their witness of His physical presence in His ministry of teaching and miracles, through the witness of His physical death and resurrection and ascension, the apostles will be able to share this glory with others. That's the point. How do the apostles share the glory of Christ with others? By preaching about Him, by witnessing concerning His miracles, His death and resurrection and ascension. That's how they share the glory of Jesus. That's how we do it, isn't it? So they'll be able to share the very real love of God experienced between the Father and the Son with themselves because God was physically with them and also with others through their witness. And in this way the unity of the Father and Son has been experienced by the Son in human form with the apostles. Ah, a fantastic idea. The experience that the Father and Son have, John says that they experienced because the Son had a relationship with them. 
and then goes on to say, and we have a taste of that because through the apostles and the word that they preached, we also have a relationship with them. We're experiencing the divinity. We all carry a part of Jesus' experience with His apostles in our relationship with other Christians because we share His word. If you don't believe me, try just not going to church for a year. Try being sick. Well, you don't have to try that, but I'm saying, you know, people who are ill, faithful Christians who are extremely ill, cannot come to church, cannot come to services, cannot have fellowship, you know, and they're gone for several months. What do, what do you, they always say, oh, it's so good to be back. It's good to be with my people, my family. You know? Why is that? Well, we share something together that you just cannot share with others outside. I've often said, I have a relationship with my biological family and I love them, you know, my bio family, my parents are gone obviously, but you know, uncles and cousins and that, but I don't have fellowship with them because they're not believers. So I have a family relationship, but I don't have fellowship with them. I don't have with them what I have with you. And I think we, we understand that. All right, we need to finish up. Verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So he builds on the idea that disciples share the experience of him by asking the Father to bring all believers to heaven so they can experience firsthand the divine presence of Jesus Christ. So now uh, we know Him through the writings of the apostles, but then we're going to know Him from personal experience. So He's talking about the future and He's praying for us and He's saying, you know what I had with the apostles face to face? I'm praying that the people who believe in the future will also have that experience, to have a relationship with me face to face. Okay? And we'll see what the women and, and, and we'll see what the women and the apostles and the 500 saw and heard and touched after his resurrection. So Jesus finishes by reiterating that the world knows nothing of the things he's spoken of. You know, he has known, obeyed and shared the word. He's also shared it with his apostles and he's going to share it in the future with them through the power of the Holy Spirit who will shed the knowledge and the love of him within them to others that come in contact with them. So he finishes up his prayer with the implicit promise that they may not be able to behold his glory soon, but through faith he'll be with them to love and comfort them, and not only them, but every... In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not only going to come to them, but through them the Holy Spirit's also going to come to us. You know, when we're baptized, right? Uh, Peter says in Acts 2.38 to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and we shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's praying that what the apostles had with him we also will have through the Spirit. So let's summarize. So Jesus finishes up this teaching and encouragement section by praying the following. One, that the Father honor and glorify Himself and the Son by going through with His plan to save mankind at the cost of his life. 
Two, he reaffirms his love and confirmation of the apostles' faith and he asks God to protect that faith as they go out on their own mission with the gospel. And three, the Lord ends with a request that the church grow and maintain its unity until such time that the vision of Christ seen through faith in the word becomes a reality when Christ exalts the church to be with Him at the right hand of God forever. In other words, what we now see by faith, he prays, we'll actually see in reality. All right, well I think the numerous bells that have gone off tell us the class is over, so <laughs> that's it for this time. Next week we're going to begin the study surrounding his suffering. So he enters the, the passion, if you will, uh, part of his, of his life. And that's it for today. Thank you for your attention.